Welcome to The Director's Take, a podcast where we explore how you go from directing something with your mates to being the most senior decision maker on a film set. I'm Marcus Thomas. And I'm Oz Arshad, and we are both writer directors at the beginning of our TV and feature film directing journeys. The pathway doesn't exist, so we are going to do our best to help you bridge the gap. Hello everyone, welcome back to the director's take. So I'm recording this because I'm on the move, I'm on a train platform, just about to go to set. I've been asked to direct a little video project, which is fun. It's gonna be mixed medium with, with this and AI, so kind of flying around, but we still managed to record an episode and get it done. If you listen to this, we've got it out successfully. Well done us, but yeah. So it's been a minute. We've been uh, working away behind the scenes We've been trying to keep as active as we can, trying to keep engaged, doing little shit posts here and there to uh, keep the humour, keep the love alive. Um, but actually, like considering we've not really been posting anything, the numbers are still doing bits, so it's, it's cool. I don't know what's happening, but I think people are still talking, sharing, discovering and taking lessons from the back catalogue, so that's cool. If you want to see a bit more from us, we were recently on Just Get A Real Job podcast with the lovely Jamie McKinley. So do go check that out as a two-parter. Um, if you don't want to hear us interviewing other people for a change and being on the other side of it, then go check that out. It's really cool. There's lots of nuggets in there and probably a bit more personal stuff about our journeys and our relationship with creativity and directing. So definitely go check that out. Just a little update, really, about me and Oz. So Oz is obviously done a new film because he's a psychopath and he's still working on that um lots of festival news i believe he got into manchester and uh, a couple of others so that's very very cool it's all happening uh with the space plug we keep getting rejected from absolutely everywhere which i'm absolutely miffed about but such is life and such is the journey um i kind of um i say miffed i'm not because i don't have faith in in uh festivals and neither should you because uh what does it really mean for me uh, I kind of see it as being like, I'm super proud of the film, super happy, and I think it's my best work. And the people that I've showed it to um, would corroborate that. So for me, that's the win. Like, that's as long as I'm happy with it and I'm really proud of the work that I've done. So, yeah, that's all happening. But I'm sure it will find its its way in its audience eventually. And as for the podcast, we're obviously working way behind the scenes. Lots of fancy stuff is happening. We're already recording episodes. It's all sort of happening. And we're aiming to kind of nail that in the first part of this year. Maybe like the second quarter of this year. Um, and because the BAFTAs are here, we thought we'd drop a little BAFTA special with uh, people that we like. So we brought on Yasmin Afifi and Elham Hissas. They are both nominees in the short film category of this year's BAFTA. So we thought we'd bring them on, break down the process of them making their short films, which you can absolutely see online right now. And we talked about the festival journey that they've gone on and how they built up traction, how they navigated their way towards earning this BAFTA nomination and what's happened in the aftermath. Really, really cool, really insightful. And I hope you enjoy. Welcome, everyone. We've got a really special show today, a BAFTA nomination special for us, because we've got two amazing filmmakers on. 
And I'm just going to run through the bio, so let's start with Yasmin Afifi. So Yasmin is an award-winning writer-director based in London, and her work has screened in festivals all over the world, including the BAFTA and BIFA qualifying Underwire, Encounters, LFF, among others. She completed her BA at University of Westminster on their prestigious film course, and has just completed her MA in directing at the National Film and Television School on a full scholarship from BBC Film. She loves using the medium of comedy, magic realism and absurdism to explore taboo and dark subject matters. Taking very real grounded characters and throwing them into more conceptual worlds to explore stories with heart and relevance to the world we live in. And this mode of exploration led to Yasmin writing and directing Jellyfish and Lobster as her graduation film, which has gone on to receive widespread industry acclaim and earning her a BAFTA nomination too in the short film category. So Elham is a BAFTA nominated and Oscar shortlisted writer, director and actor working in film and television. He loves stories that explore what it means to be human, how the tiniest moments can change us forever through connection and where hope can take us if we're allowed to dream. His debut short film, Our Kind of Love, was BAFTA longlisted in 2019 and has been screened at festivals worldwide. And this film has garnered over 3.6 million views on YouTube to date. His latest film, Yellow, was BAFTA nominated in 2024 and longlisted for the Academy Awards in the same year. Welcome to the podcast, both of you. Thank you for having us. So let's just like get a little bit of background. So how did you both end up in the film industry and, and more specifically, why have you both ended up directing? Well, I was born with herbs of palsy in my right arm. So it meant that for the first like 13 or so years of my life, I was just in and out of hospital. So I've had like, about 11 to 12 surgeries in my arm. Um, and so I was like either at home recovering or in a hospital recovering. And so during that time, I was just watching lots and lots and lots of films. Like cinema for me was genuinely like my window to the world. And like it gave me an understanding of the world and of people because I was just so kind of withdrawn. I was in my own kind of little world and had and was lacking so much social interaction. And then around the same time, I started writing a lot because that became my only sort of accessible form of outlet. And I, I guess in some ways, those two kind of merged because when I sort of hit a certain age where I was like happy with, with who I am, like no more surgeries, I'm just gonna kind of like, I really wanna live my life. I really started pursuing cinema. I knew at the time I wanted to do something with cinema. I knew I wanted to tell stories. And one of the doctors who, who had known me sort of recommended acting classes, I guess, because he kind of knew that I really loved films. Um, and also as a way to kind of like catch up, play catch up on that lack of social interaction that I had growing up. So then I started taking acting classes and became obsessed with sort of like actors and their craft and what they do and never to be an actor myself, but kind of just, there was just something about understanding humans and, and human behavior and human emotions. All three of those kind of merged, right? Like the love of cinema, the writing, the storytelling, and then also the craft of acting and, and human emotion. And, and I didn't really know that like I wanted to direct. I didn't know what that was, but I knew I wanted to tell stories and I knew I just had lots of opinions about how I wanted to tell those stories. And so I just started making films, like making, working sort of non-film related jobs to f sort of fund my own little short films with friends. And so I kind of learned by doing as well and just making lots and lots of probably really bad short films until, you know, get good at it. Great, and how about you, Han? I came into cinema, well, I came into Western cinema 
quite late. Um, I grew up on Hindi cinema because growing up in Afghanistan, we didn't have a cinema industry of our own. So we'd get Bollywood films coming into the country. So I grew up watching Bollywood films. That was kind of my first exposure to film. So Alham, give, give us your top three Bollywood ones then, man. Oh, man. All right. So top one, Dilse with Shah Rukh Khan. Is the the soundtrack is it's my favorite soundtrack, uh, by A. R. Rahman. Dilwale Dilhani le jayenge second one because that's classic. That is in the Guinness Book of World Records as the longest running film in Indian cinemas. Like what thirty years now? Oz? I think so. They're still playing it in Mumbai, like they still have regular screenings every week. Um, dude, third one has to be Gangs of Wasipur, part two. Everyone should watch that. Gangs of Wasipur, part one and two. Sick. We have to put this in the show notes now, aren't we? You have to like write them down. <laughs> it is incredible. It's like it's like the Quentin Tarantino of India. Uh, director called Anurag Kashyap. Um, but yeah, so that's that's where like that's where my love for for cinema came. But in Hindi, that's why I can speak Hindi now. Um, and then when I came to this country, I I was learning English, and then I had to watch. I had to watch things, English things, to 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 learn English. And my first exposure to great cinema, great cinema, was Teletubbies. It was insane, dude. I was hooked. I was like, bro, I was like fourteen, man. <laughs> I mean, I I loved it, man. Teletubbies, Tweenies. Um, so I learned everything I know from those two shows, guys. <laughs> mate, Teletubbies is a fucking horror, mate. <laughs> again, again, again. Yeah. You know what? It's it's only now I realise that the editors were lazy because they just replayed the whole episode twice. It had a runtime of like of like an hour, but half an hour was just the same thing again. Do you know what I mean? I always wanted to try Tubby Toast, man. Tubby Toast. <laughs> I think you used to sell Tubby Toasted, actually. The, oh, no way. Yeah, like little yogurt pots. I think they did. Either that or I'm just... <laughs> I was given the pink yogurt and told it was. Oh, dude, I love the pancakes that would spit out of the, the vacuum cleaner. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that would always make me hungry. <laughs> I was always like, your mom, I need some pancakes. Um, but yeah, man, but I mean, I am still, I would say, quite cinema illiterate with the old classics. Um, I'm still working my way through different lists and learning different things. Um, but And also, I came into cinema quite late. I studied law. Um, and then I was a paralegal for a bit and much to my mother's disappointment, um, I quit, <laughs> I quit, but it will be, it, I got into acting. Um, and then after that, I got into filmmaking to be able to tell, tell my own stories where I don't play the terrorist, you know? Um, I, I'm not gonna lie. It's fun playing the villain. It's really fun. But after a while, it's kind of representation comes into it as well, where I have, I feel like I have a duty as an Afghan to, you know, be sensitive of how my country is being portrayed and whether I have a role to play in it or not, which is another reason why I make films. But yeah, man. Why this is interesting, why I was keen to get you both on is that obviously like me and Oz have got affiliations with the NFTS and um, some of the audience members think that we're pro-NFTS, which we kind of are, but your journeys are both intersected and you're both at the same place. Like you're both BAFTA nominated. So, and one of you is NFTS and the other is not. I'd be keen to know um, Yasmin, why did you choose to go to film school? And Elham, like, did you make a conscious effort to not do it, or is it just not even in your your brain to to go there? First, I feel like as soon as I finish this chat, I'm gonna go and start watching Teletubbies because I've never seen an episode, <laughs> and like, I I felt like I'm like I'm such an outsider here. I've never watched an episode. You've never watched an episode of Teletubbies, have you not? 
I've never seen an episode of Teletubbies. Oh my god. How old are you, Yasmin? I'm 30. I'm 30. You poor girl. You poor, poor girl. I'm so It's terrible. I know it's bad. (laughs) Apparently, it's like the the biggest export throughout all the countries in the world. It's like one of the most popular BBC exports. Yeah, it plays everywhere because they're just talking nonsense. I'm not surprised. I know of it. I've just never like sat to watch it, but I I will get on that. (laughs) But um, why I went to film school, to be honest, I, I applied, like you hear a lot about like the reputation of the NFTS and how amazing it is and um but to be honest I was always like super intimidated to apply and and or super intimidated by film school in in general like after Westminster I sort of I thought I would work my way in the industry and continue making and kind of go down that route um but then um because my dad was diagnosed like midway through my course um at Westminster when I graduated, I sort of took a I took a break from from filmmaking because I sort of became his carer. So then he passed away in 2019, and uh, that sort of the rest of that year was a bit of a blur because I was just sort of going through the motions and the grief. Um, and then when I was sort of like at a point where I was like, okay, I'm ready to kind of dive in, like dive back in again, the pandemic hit. 2020 came along. Um, and then and the whole world kind of came to a standstill. And so I applied for NFTS just because I was just like, I don't know what else to do. Like everything, it just feels pretty stagnant at the moment. Um, and I, I, yeah, I purely did it out of like, this feels like the only avenue I can do at the moment um, where I feel like I'm, I'm doing something. Um, obviously with no with no guarantee that you you get in and so I I sort of just did it on a whim and then just kind of forgot about it convinced I would never get in Um, and then did and so that's how sort of that came about and that was in 2021 wasn't it when you you kind of got in yeah so I did the application in 2020 it was like summer of 2020 um, and then got in and started like beginning of 2021 yeah so it's like almost peak covid times Let's not redig that drama up. Uh, how about you? Uh-huh. Um, I'd I'd always kind of been curious about film school actually, um, but it was always a bit expensive for me. Um, and secondly, when I made my first short film, Our Kind of Love, I we we wrote it and we were about to shoot as a one day shoot, and I, I I showed up on set, and I didn't I didn't know what anyone did. I didn't know what the first AD did. I didn't know what the gaffer did. I was just like being introduced to all of these people on this set. And I was like, oh my God, there's ways, there's so many people. Um, And I think that was my film school. Our kind of love was my film school. Although I do believe that film school is really good in terms of also teaching you the craft and teaching you the craft in a certain way, but more so in my opinion, getting, making friends, finding your network, finding your friend, your your, uh, film family. Um, And that's what I think I, I feel like that's what I've missed out on, maybe, um, because making a film in terms of the technical aspects, you can you can pick that up after a film or two films, and you can kind of know what the, what everything does, and then you slowly start to figure out what your visual style is and what kind of stories you want to tell. But I think the networking is is what I feel like I I, I would have enjoyed a lot in film school, um, and I have been told I've been asked before as well if I can if I want to go to film school, but I I feel like. Um, I've learned a lot. I've I've learned quite a lot from the films I've made just off my own back, and it's just about mm, continuing to learn, 
continuing to make films now. Um, but yeah, I, I do. I do wish sometimes maybe I should have gone to film school. <laughs> it would have been fun. No, but just just on that point, like around about that same time, I think it might have been just after you. I can't remember. You'd worked with the, the same crew that I had when I did the 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 film that I did at the NFTS. You worked with Anna. You worked with Olan. That's right. Yeah, that's right. You know, you network and you can still have people of quality. Well, that's the thing. Like when I was making my first short film, um, I had no filmography, no history in filmmaking, and I was like, how do I, how do I bring a, how do I bring a team together? And I'd watch loads of short films on Vimeo, short of the week, Vimeo soft picks. I just watched loads and loads and loads just to learn and learn. Well, the people I'm looking for are at the end of each film, the credits. Yep. So why don't I just why don't I just look at the films I like and see who shot them? And at the time, I only knew who what the DOP was. Olan was so kind enough to kind of give me my first break with our kind of love, which he shot. And then he brought on the team. So he was like, okay, I recommend Anna for the production designer. I was just so incredibly lucky for someone like Olan. You know, I I tweeted him. I just sent him a tweet and I was like, dude, I've got a script. I wonder if you if you wanted to meet. Um, and I, I was like, uh, I promise you green tea. <laughs> so we met at South Bank and, and he's like, you promised me green tea. I'm like, at your service. Um, so we had green tea and we spoke about the film and then he was he was in. So I'll always be grateful to Olan. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of how I found my way around uh, to making my first film. I feel like having been to film school, to be honest, I'm like, like they don't really teach you how to make a film. Like Marcus, you've been to the NFTS, like, what I found most is that they're, they're kind of, what they teach you is to embrace your own process. Because there's really like no right or wrong way as to the stories you tell, how you tell it, how you run a set, how you want your set to be. Like, it's so, so subjective to to you. And, and it's, um, and so in, in some ways it's like really film school, or for me being at the NFTS, was actually just learning to embrace my own process, how you work with actors, how every like everything. Um, so it's weird because I don't feel like they teach you how to do what you do. I think you do that purely by doing what you've done. But yeah, I guess that network is so valuable. But but there are so many other ways of 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 achieving that as well. It's it's difficult though, isn't it? It's because you only know that having gone through it. But if you're on the outside, like, you still feel, feel like you might be missing something. Like we, we, we might meet or speak to, um, I don't know, a well-established director. And if you mention it at FTS, they will definitely tell you whether they got in or not as the first thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's a right of passage. Uh, they feel like they might be missing something. And it's like, you're not. Mm. It's, it's as you're saying, Elham, it's, it's kind of just, if you, if you can put yourself in a position to just make stuff constantly, you'll be getting the same out of it as what you would by going to a film school. It's more difficult because you've got less space and there's probably more outside pressures at the same time, but you'll still get the same result. And actually, there's a question that I've got later on that I want to bring up that I want to ask you, Yasmin, was that, you know, you made three films at the NFTS and I remember you sent me your second one. It's called Wank, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I remember I remember you telling me that 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 you used that second film as kind of like a way for you to try things and flex your muscles for what you wanted to do on your grad film, which would have been your third film. And I thought that that was a really smart way of of working rather than trying to hit three things out of the park. Did you have that strategy planned? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I sort of like just realized that the NFTS was sort of like a playground to explore. Like this is where you have license to fail like you this is where you try what you haven't done this is where you you know like the stakes are relatively low in a sense of 
they're providing you with the facilities and the equipment and the resources and you're not sort of being financed and commissioned and so it's your playground to have fun and explore and try things you haven't done before and I knew what I wanted to do with my grad film because I had the idea like just before starting the NFTS um so I yeah sort of like tentatively was like well I haven't explored comedy before or any sort of like surrealism um let me do that with wank um that feels weird to say that let me do that let, let, let me <laughs> I mean, explore some surrealism with a cheeky wank but um and so yeah because I feel like there's there, there's this pressure where it's like oh you're at the NFTS so you're expected to like make award-winning films and you're expected to you know every all three films that you make have to be like a hit and that was it's a bit like no I actually want to use this time in this space the only space in the in where I'll be able to have an idea and do it and not have to like binge and be commissioned and and have executive producers like anything that comes to mind you you can make it and so it's like I kind of want to use this space to just step out of my comfort zone and kind of explore my creative boundaries you gotta be willing to fail right yeah, I was fully, like, that film, I remember being like, even if we lose all the locations, we'll just shoot it all in this one room. Like, I was just so open to kind of whatever happens, happens, we'll create something, we'll we'll, we'll make something. My question kind of follows on from that. So, like, with you having both made, um, like, lots of films before, um, what is the starting point when you're conceiving a short film? Like, what is the starting point of, the, of an idea and what is it? about the idea which makes you choose to actually pursue it and take it further i have like an i have like an inner compass which i don't know how how it works but if i hear an idea there's some like i'll know if i like it I, i'll know if it clicks and it and for me it starts with the plot it starts with the arena in which the story takes place because there's there's a there, there are select themes that we keep in every story, it has the select few themes that we have in life, whether it's a human condition, whether it's a death, happiness, loneliness. There's a set list of themes that we experience as human beings and that we want to express and make art about. But what's more interesting is the arena in, in which we tell them. So like my film Yellow is about human rights. It's about Afghanistan. It's about women's rights, um, which is on that list of themes that exists. But telling it through a shop that sells chardalis, that sells a full body veil. That's what really intrigued me because I'm looking, I, I love containers because that's ultimately, that's how we experience, in my opinion, the film. You experience it through the plot and then the theme sings out to you, whether you watch it then or if you're driving home or if you're thinking about it a week later, if I'm lucky as a filmmaker for my film to have touched you so much that you think about it a week later. But for me, the container is kind of what I look for if, if, it, if it clicks for me. Is this like this story that you want to tell about, I don't know, like a boy and his father. Okay, that's fine. But that's such a big theme thematically. But what is a container? What is the, what is the way it takes shape? What is the, 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 the most intriguing way of telling the story? And I like the smaller the container, the better for me. Like um, the, the shop, it's just, it's just one shop, just one room. But it talks about all of these different themes. So that, that's what I look for when I decide to kind of embark on this journey of making a short film, which is actually quite a long journey. Like it's between six to eight, six months to a year of your life. Do you know what I mean? So, um, 
Yeah, you've got to love it. I want to ask actually both of you. Um, you know, you've both made very, very personal films. You know, and they don't they don't stink per se. Meaning they're not insincere. They're not <laughs> trenches. And you know, your films are, are authentic because people do that. You know, there's a lot of films that you might come across where you can just think this is just not genuine. It's just not coming from a truthful place. So starting with yourself, Yasmin, and then on to you, Alham. Um, how do you imbue things so personal? to your art or are you not even conscious of that and it just it just is what it is i don't think i'm conscious of it to be honest you have a story that sits on your chest and it feels like it's a heavy weight on your chest and you feel like you kind of are not going to breathe until you you tell it you 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 tell that story um and then you do and i don't think you're conscious or aware of sort of how much of yourself you give to it I think a lot of that comes from just trusting your instinct every time you trust your instinct you are making a subconscious decision that is probably reflecting you personally and I think I learned that to do I learned to do that a lot with jellyfish and lobster I was making choices and at the time it just felt it felt right because I because I I knew the story and the characters so closely that I just, I knew the decision I was making, even if I didn't quite understand it at the time. Sometimes it was just like, I don't know, I just, I feel it. Um, and then down the line, you kind of realise why that decision was made and where, and, and where it came from. But at the time, you're just, you're just trusting your gut. There's the conscious decisions you're making with the story and the characters and, and sort of what you're trying to explore and say. But then I think a lot of it is the unconscious ones. And I think that's when your gut tells you to do something and you just have to kind of go with it. Yeah, I think I think I agree, actually. I'm not... When I make a film, I'm not conscious about um, some of the, you know, the, the the way it ends up at the end. It's not something that I kind of go, oh, I've, I've done... In, in terms of craft and in terms of the way it looks, in terms of the character, in terms of direction, that's all me making an effort to make these things happen. But when the film comes out and when it starts singing on its own, it has a piece of me in it. But that's a subconscious piece. And that's who I am as, you know, an, as, as a person who's been alive for 33 years. Do you know what I mean? It's all of my experiences, all of my my being kind of kind of translating into this film w without me knowing. And that's what I feel like with every everyone's short films, you kind of get a glimpse into how they see the world or everyone's films, actually. Um, or even with with the way the way people talk or the way people listen or the way people um, tell stories and it, everything gives you a clue of what their life is like and how they see the world because we are just like you know uh, just two pounds of flesh in our head which is what our reality is it's our brain this tiny thing in, in caged in the skull and everyone has their own universe uh, through which they see the world and that that translates into anything you touch whether the friends you make, the decisions you make, the, the things you do, the things you believe in, the films you make, it's kind of, um, I guess it's a, big, a mix of both conscious and subconscious. Like authenticity and, and something that's honest does come from a subconscious place. I think if you try to make every single decision conscious and try to, mm. I think, I don't think it would, the work would come out the same. Mm. I think it's it's those moments of, of allowing your subconscious, of allowing your instinct to sort of like kick in and drive you, that that's what makes it, it's what gives it its DNA. Alham, have you had any backlash of anybody? Like, because obviously you're portraying 
the Taliban and in in what's happened and what's changed. And I'm sure there's some people who'll be like, why are you showing a Muslim? Absolutely, bro. So I did a Sky News interview. Uh, this was after we'd been uh, BAFTA nominated. I did an interview on Sky News and I was just talking about the film and talking about what's happening in, in my country. And I got a call like an hour later. I was driving to do a recce for another short film. And I got a call from a dude just saying like, look, um, so I knew him through another friend, but I didn't know him enough for him to call me and give me his opinion like that. But he was like, oh, you, you went to Afghanistan because I was in Afghanistan five months ago. He's like, oh, you had a great time and now you're, you're here slagging off the Taliban, blah, blah, blah. And I, I, really, I really tried to engage him. I tried to engage him in actual dialogue, but it felt like I was going around in circles and he was getting louder, I was getting louder. And then at the, at the end, I had to cut the phone, but I was, I was getting, um, getting a bit of backlash. Yeah, even online, I'm getting some messages from people saying, oh, why? You know, I mean, because Afghanistan is a country that has had and I've mentioned this before, like the Afghan flag has changed 19 times in the 21st century, 15 times in my lifetime. And it's a country that's always been in turmoil and it's always gone through change. And it's at a point now where people um, are seeing, because there is there is peace in Afghanistan now with the Taliban in power, because I was there five months ago. There is peace. The Taliban are building roads, they're building bridges, but they just don't recognize women which is su such a juxtaposition. And a lot of people now in Afghanistan are like, okay, cool, like, let's try and get through this level of peace and let's try and get past it. And then we'll figure out the rest of the problems as we come to it. But it's such a huge problem. 20 million Afghan women are being treated as second-class citizens in Afghanistan. Um, Afghanistan is the only country in the world where girls are banned from having an education after the sixth grade. That is a big problem. That's not a teething issue for a new government. That's something that needs to be tackled, that needs to be spoken about. And the fact that my film is speaking about it, it that is ruffling some, some feathers. So, yeah, man, I, I have had a few, a few, um, few exchanges. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I feel quite bad to just move on to the next point. But um, <laughs> what, what, what were the challenges that you faced when, when making the films especially? So um, if we start with you, Elham, what... I know that you kind of shot yours um, like self-funded and over the course of one day largely. So like it'd be cool to, to understand the sort of challenges you faced in making that and then we'll go to you afterwards, Yasmin. Yeah, man. All the, <laughs> the biggest challenge on the day of shoot was um, me, my producer and my friend Azim. We, we got all of the props and everything from my house in Wembley and we drove an hour to Hackney for the shoot. And then I realized I'd forgotten the main props, the, the veils. I'd forgotten, <laughs> I'd forgotten the, the Chalaris, which the whole film is about. And I'd, I'd got them delivered from Afghanistan because you can't buy them anywhere else. So I was like, oh, shit. And already we were late. So I had to tell Azim to go back and get them. Um, also, dude, like this was a guerrilla filmmaking thing. Like I was shooting, we had, we had exterior shots uh, in Hackney and we had no permit. So I had a crowd around me because they thought I was shooting Top Boy. And I was like, guys, like, please, I don't need a crowd right now. And then as we went in, thank God, as we went into interior shots, we had um, we had someone come in from Camden, uh, uh, from Camden Council. Um, oh, it was a Hackney Council going, oh, you guys aren't, you aren't shooting, right? You didn't shoot outside. I was like, no, of course not. No, no, we're just shooting inside. So we had someone come in to check, but it was just good timing. So it's a lot of a lot of what you expect what you experience in as a indie filmmaker we we made the film for like three thousand pounds almost no money it was just rock and roll man <laughs> that's that's how we did it <laughs> how did you get the external stuff that was afghan 
Talk to us about that, please. Yeah, so that's actually um, footage that was shot by uh, a great friend of mine, Kareem Shah, who makes uh, beautiful documentaries. Um, and he was in Afghanistan at the time that I was um, in pre-production for the film. And we had a conversation about getting some shots while he was there. Um, and so those shots were all shot in Afghanistan last year, post-Taliban takeover. Um, so that's what, that's what Afghanistan looks like. Um, and then we we got that footage and we married it with the the sh- the, the footage shot here in, in in the UK. What about the shot with all the you know the shot where you've got the got the wall and then you've got all the ladies in the burqa like that's in that was in London. No, that was right. here, man. That was all my producers under the burqas. I put I put my producer, I put my production designer, I had my hair and makeup girl, Jess. Like we had, I was like, all right, girls, I'm really sorry. I even had I think I had a Zim in one of those as well. <laughs> I had my mate in one of those as well. I was like, guys, look, we need to populate the scene, please. Can you whack one of these on and just walk past camera? <laughs> and also, just to bring it to sound as well, the importance of sound, like the way I married the footage in Afghanistan to the footage in the UK was primarily sound because I'm obsessed with sound, man. Like, um, it's something I, I, I was once told, and I'll never forget, that what, what you see on camera on, on the screen goes into your eyes and goes up to your brain. But what you hear goes through your ears and down to your heart. You know, so sound and for all the filmmakers out there, especially um, young filmmakers starting starting out, never ever skimp out on good sound. Always find the budget to pay your sound recorders what they want, the budget, the sound designer. Because honestly, man, I think sound is more important than picture. And the way I sold that was through the sound, marrying the sound and having it. That was the glue between the two different, um, two different. Uh, did you plan those? Did you plan those shots to like? Like, like, was it all, or was it just like grab and shoot and then fi- and do it in post? No, that that was planned. Um, I had I'd, I'd done a storyboard and I was speaking with my DOP Yanis Panlopoulos in pre, and we wanted the Chaldees to be a character on the on their own. Um, and the the way and this is what I've mentioned before as well. This film has really taught me what my visual style is, uh, like really cemented it, um, where the camera doesn't move. And I frame it very meticulously. I find the frame because I feel like it's it's a visual medium and I want the frame. Well, you know, a picture tells a, 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 a thousand words. And I think it's so important to frame it the way the story demands, uh, which is something else that young filmmakers should really think about is their framing and, and beauty. I think beauty is such a huge thing in film. And it's, it's half of film because, like I said, it's a visual medium and it's what you see. Um, so I wanted every shot to be beautiful and I wanted every shot to be able to tell the story that the scene is telling. So yeah, that was, we, we, we planned all of that. Yeah. Amazing. And how about you, Yasmin? What was, uh, what, what did you face? What were you up against? Um, up against it all. Um, <laughs> I had been writing Jellyfish and Lobster like over the year and a half because I knew <clears throat> I wanted to make it for my grad before, before I started. By the time it got to grad period, I was like, here's the script. Um, and around that time, obviously, every, you you know, around that time, everyone else is starting to have a think about what they want to do for grad and, and stuff like that. Um, yeah. And it ended up, I think, putting me at a, a, in a compromising position because, this, because the script was ready. Um, they put us first to go, despite <clears throat> it being like super super ambitious um like there's stuff in there that we didn't end up doing in the end because we couldn't because we didn't have enough time and we were the first year of of 10 of an intake of 10 um Mm. and so i think that they were still like finding their feet with 
scheduling. So we didn't get our shoot dates. Basically, so basically we had like two weeks of prep from sort of script being done, which was done from the beginning. And then when they gave us our shoot dates and then the producers around the time were going to Cannes because they go to Cannes as part of like their course. Um, so it meant that in total, we literally had two weeks of prep to do everything like location, cast, cast the older actors, cast the younger actors, all of it. And there, and there were varying locations. There was a care home. There was uh, there was the pool for the underwater stuff. There was at the time there was like a fun fair and a roller coaster. And it, like our backs were really up against the wall. Um yeah, my mind, my mind is kind of like going around in circles here because I was like, where do I begin? Or of how many sort of issues we encountered. Like so much so, just to put it into perspective, we didn't lock the pool location until a day before filming. Wow, yeah. So when we got to set that day was the <clears throat> first time we were figuring out sort of how to shoot it. We didn't lock the younger actors for Grace and Meadow until the night before the, sh the the first day of shooting and they were due to be in that first day of shooting. We got to set that day and then like Aslan who plays younger Mido was like, oh, I can't swim. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I really struggled to hold my breath. Um, and it was in the brief, it wasn't a casting brief, but. Yeah. And the costumes, costumes were made in two days. Wow. We needed to make the jellyfish and lobster costumes and we didn't have, we didn't get the costume designer on board till two days before the shoot. Like, bless her, she was like sleeping in between takes because she had spent a whole 48 hours making those costumes in time for the shoot. Mm. It was super stressful, but I think like what was really beautiful about it is that just everyone just gave into the script like everyone was doing it out of love for the script and what we wanted to achieve and everyone had some kind of a personal attachment to it or connection to it that just made them kind of want to go above and beyond to pull this film together it was a journey um yeah that is what it is yeah exactly <laughs> just to sum summarize that for you know a lot of filmmakers look we've got two fantastic filmmakers here really talented who both like had struggles in production and post-production you know making a short film is never straightforward you know it's not an escalator sort of like to the end i, I feel like if uh, even a feature film i feel like every film comes with problems it's kind of like a rule of the universe when it comes to filmmaking so as a filmmaker as a young filmmaker when you're making a film and things are going wrong don't worry that means something's being done right do you know what I mean? It, it's it's kind of there's you have to have room for I I believe like accidents on set where good accidents where you discover something new or find a new way to tell a certain scene or just completely scrap something and go in a different direction and these are all parts of the process of making film. I can't remember who said it. I definitely heard it at some point in film school, but someone attributed it to the film gods. So that when shit mm. is going wrong, it's just like the film gods are pushing the direction where your film is supposed to go. And it's, it's always the way, like you end up with like yeah. stuff which you think is important. And actually like, say for example, for you, as mean you say, like it's supposed to be roller coasters and stuff, but it's like, no one is missing that on screen clearly. So it's mm. like, it's mm. one of those, like everything ends up being distilled down to what it's supposed to be. Um, and you, mm. You can either fight against that or 
yeah, allow it to happen. I always say that I'm like constantly co-directing with circumstance. <laughs> nice. The, the mindset I go into every single shoot is understanding mm. that I'm the co-director of mm. whatever circumstance is going to kind of give us. Yeah. So then it becomes like a collaboration with all the mishaps. And then I think if you know your material well enough and you know it so deeply intrinsically, then it does become easier to sort of find your solutions around that because it's just an expression of truth but in a different way and there are a multitude of ways to express a truth. But if you know what that is, then you know you know how to sort of express it differently. Mm. I think that's what it is, is that like a lot of people's sort of like reverence for the the medium is from the end result and that's not the process and so what we try to do with this is to kind of break it down so that as you're saying like if you know what the core fundamentals of directing is which is really character and story and being on top of that and how that functions that's how you navigate all of that shit like all of these problems that come up you revert back to that and the skills there and then that's how you'll find your way through. That's for the audience, not for you two. You clearly know that. Um, <laughs> uh, we need to be reminded. <laughs> trusting your team as well. You're not alone in it. Yep. You're a DP and you have your production designer and you have your AD and you have all these people that are there with you to help you execute your vision. And sometimes it, you know, it's not sometimes actually all the time. Like it is also trusting your team and trusting that they, they are on your side. It's particularly if they're coming up with an idea that maybe you're not quite sure of or you're, you know, you hadn't thought of before. Um, trust that they are on the story side, that they're on the side of the film and making sure that it's sort of the best version of it that it can be. So it would be cool to speak about, because um, in your film, uh, Yasmin, I mean, in both films, but in your film, um, there there's great chemistry between the the leads um, which is really important, especially in a romantic comedy. So how did you go about creating that chemistry between the two actors? Um, was What was the process there um, in terms of rehearsal, if you used any? And yeah, how did you kind of build that on screen? To be honest, I feel like a lot of that came in the casting. I casted the actors based on what parts of them as a human being were parts of the characters. Like, they already naturally had that kind of sense of humor that sort of openness that because I remember at the time I was kind of like I'm half Egyptian myself so I was like where am I going to find a 75 plus year old Egyptian man who's going to be willing to have a wank on camera like just knowing <laughs> knowing the culture and knowing it like I was just like how mm. and then I came up with Syed and he 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 just naturally is that kind of Careless. It's the word careless. What's the word I'm looking for? Brave. Brave. And and similarly with with Flo. Flo felt to me quite. She was quite introverted. She felt like she was constantly like within herself, which is an element of grace that I wanted. So in in many ways, I kind of like I knew that who they were as humans. And I think I I cast humans. I don't cast actors. And I knew who they were as people. There were elements of them that were that were the character. And so bringing them together, I, I kind of, I had an idea, you're never really sure. I had an idea that they would sort of hit it off um, really well. Um, and just got very sort of lucky that they did. We had a few rehearsals, but they weren't necessarily like rehearsing exactly like scene for scene. I'm not really vigorous with my rehearsals. I like to leave it to the day. 
um, mm. and just see how that allows it to kind of feel alive and open and fluid and not rehearsed. Um, mm. So it was mostly just conversations. Like I spent a lot of the time with just the three of us having chats, getting to know each other and kind of building on that personal relationship as opposed to like rehearsing scenes. And what sort of exercise did you do in that rehearsal room if you if you did if you did any to build relationships? They weren't exercise, they were just conversations around like mm. the story, the characters, what they liked about the characters, what they didn't like about the characters. I do sometimes do hot seating. It's just getting them to answer questions in character. Mm. Um and you ask like you ask random like what did you do today? How how did you spend your day? Like what you know, what's your favourite mm. I don't know, dinner? Like just random mm. sort of questions that are not really related to the story. Um mm. Just to see how they answer it in characters, and so I'll do that often at times, just because I think it's a fun activity and it's a way of kind of getting them to remove any self-consciousness that they did have, because it's not about answering correctly. Um, but for the most part, it was just um, getting to know each other and why we resonated with the story and why each of us wanted to be a part of the project and wanted to tell the story. Um, that. That though that was like the main bulk of it. And how about you, Aham? So you've um, you work closely with your actor Absini. Is it Daria? Yeah, Daria. That's right. If you can talk about the process of of developing the scenario and the characters and working with them as a collaborator, because um, you obviously worked together on your previous film as well. You know, it's really interesting because um, casting for this because I've worked with Afi before and we hit it off and she's a great actress. But on this film, I really wanted to cast an Afghan because I've is from Iran, so I really wanted to have that genuine authenticity. So I spoke to Afi before and I said, with your permission, with your blessing, I'd love to open the casting process to Afghans. And she was kind enough to say, please go ahead and see what you can find. And I I, I didn't find many, but I, I, I auditioned my cousins and I, I three of my cousins and, and two family friends because in the Afghan culture, women aren't really involved in cinema, especially as actors. It's kind of, looked, it's kind of taboo. So I remember I auditioned uh, one of my cousins who was my favorite. She had it. Like I, I, I still have the tape. You'd see it and you could see the character and you're like, oh man, she's got, she's got something. And this was like my aunt's daughter. And I offered her the role and then my aunt said no. She said no, she's, she's not allowed. And I was just, I was completely heartbroken, man. Because um, it, it's, it's so interesting because, and then I went to Afsana and of, of course Afsana brings her own sense of the character and she's done such a beautiful job um but with every actor I'd, an actor would bring a different thing a different actors would bring different things and what my cousin brought brought was completely different to what afi brought and both of them would have done incredible afi did incredible you know she's great but it it is a shame because what the film is about kind of um this uh lack of freedom for afghan women i kind of experienced that through the casting process in my own family and I remember I actually, uh, her name is Diwa, my cousin. Um, I picked my aunt and my cousin up from the station around like a month ago, maybe four weeks, yeah, three weeks ago. And I remember she, it was it was such a cinematic moment that we went through. It was like, it was kind of like a, a weird moment where I was driving, I was in the front and my aunt was sat next to me and my cousin was sat in the back and there was just kind of silence. And then my cousin was like, very quietly, she's like, Alham, I've, I've seen your film. And I was like, oh, yeah, How, what did you think? She's like, I loved it, you know? But there's a, there's, a, there's a sense of sadness in her voice. 
it's almost like she wished she could have been in it. Um, but I kind of like it. It kind of I, it was a strange experience with that with the casting. But well, I, I'm so lucky to have had Afsana, who did such an incredible job, and we have such great chemistry. Um, but it, it it could have been a different film in a different way. You don't you don't know. Do you know what I mean? So that's another aspect with making films from making films from my culture with, with my background is that you you don't have the freedom of getting the people that you want. Um, so that's another restriction, I would say. Yeah. And did you did you rehearse together as well? Um, yeah. What was that process like? Yeah, it was really great, and we found a lot of different things in there. Um, we we would speak about the characters, and even then, I knew because uh, I'd been to the shop before. I so we were in Afsana's house in her living room. We kind of I kind of mapped out what the shop would look like. So even at that point, I knew where my camera would be. So I'd see it from different aspects. So I was working both with character and camera at the same time in rehearsals. But all the camera was all in my head and I knew exactly the the way because I, I, I edited it myself as well. So I already going in, I knew, which is actually another thing where if you are like, Af, like um, Yasmin said, if you are so in tune with your material in what the kind of film you want to make and you know it inside out, you kind of have it in your head what is necessary and what isn't, especially when you're shooting, especially when it's a one-day shoot. And I remember I was always two hours behind. My DOP was also my first AD. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, so Yanis would be like, oh, dude, we're like two hours behind. So I'd have to quickly change things up on the day, but uh, because I knew the material so well and I knew the edit in my head, I knew what I didn't need. So I'd just scrap complete setups and do something that saved us two hours. Did you edit it as well? Yes, I edited uh, most of it and I edited it with... Uh, my wonderful editor, Ross Leopard, who edited Our Kind of Love. And he's an editor that I learned a lot from in that film as well. Um, but I would also, for young filmmakers, um, I mean, I don't want to be the one who's giving so much advice because I'm a student myself as well. But if, when you make films, try your hand at editing as well. Try your hand at cutting it yourself because then you see what you shoot and how that transfers into the edit room. You know, like how does that, because then you realize, wait, maybe I could have done this and not done that, and that would have saved you time on the day. Or maybe I needed this bit, and that tells you about coverage, and that teaches you about coverage. Or maybe it teaches you that you don't need coverage, as much coverage as we think we do. Uh, and I'm a fan of having as little amount of coverage as possible. I really like that kind of style. That that actually segues quite nicely onto what I, something I want to ask is for both of you is you know people obviously are seeing that you're BAFTA nominated seeing you know all the attention that both y'all are getting and fully deserved but obviously you two have been on a journey right this has not been sort of like you know all of a sudden you're standing in the light there's a lot of style and grind that's taken over the years you know you've honed your craft both of you you've done short films that no one's going to see you know years and years of finding your voice so you know starting with yourself you as like strength and resilience and just staying on it like, what's that been like over the years? It's weird because, uh, like, I don't want to say it's been hard because I think it, it, like, it has its challenges and it has so many challenges. But I think because, like, for me, there's just nothing else in the world that I want to do, like, that it just makes it easy to just kind of keep going with it because I can't, I can't picture myself doing anything else. I haven't done anything else from a young age apart from write stories tell stories watch films make films um and so absolutely it has huge challenges um and you have your moments of like 
self-doubt and you have your insecurity and you, I think you're always probably going to have that. Because people in other sectors at your age, you know, everyone, we're all at different ages, but people who are similar to us, they might be like, right, they're now having kids, they're having families, they've got mortgages, they, they move, they move, their careers are moving into sort of like different tax brackets now. For you filmmaking, it ain't like that. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? no. <laughs> <laughs> like, you really have to just be in love with it. This is why I think, like, to, to sort of do what we do, you have to be kind of, like, obsessively in love with what it is you're doing mm. because it is so hard and it is those... It, there are so many challenges that come to it but then if you do have that mindset with it then it's it's more like a way of life than it is um mm. like a job so that's not to say you shouldn't compartmentalize your your life and your personal life with your work but it's to say that the work is a way is a way of life for you and so there's there's like for me anyway mm. there's like there's no other option yeah uh, absolutely i agree so much it's such a way of life and oh it's what you said especially like us coming from, you know, the Asian background and Muslim background. Like I have friends who have like two kids now, three kids and have mortgages. And I remember when, when I got BAFTA nominated, I went to my mom and I was like, oh, mom, I got nominated for a BAFTA. And she was like, okay, when are you getting married? <laughs> my mom still thinks I'm going through a phase. Do you know what I mean? She still thinks I'm going through this filming phase. And because in my culture, like in my, in this Afghan culture, filming, cinema, this doesn't really hold that much space. It's not something that you do. It's, it's more you get a stable job, you get married and you have a few kids and that's your journey. So, I mean, my, my brother, who's younger than me, uh, he's expecting uh, a child soon, inshallah. And it's kind of like my cousins are looking at me weird. Like, oh, your, your bro's younger than you. He's married and he's having a kid before you type thing. Do you know what I mean? So I have to, I have to fight that as well as the daily grinds of filmmaking and trying to make a living and trying to make good films that's you know what i mean but like you said the, the journey the, the, these awards are nice and being bafta nominated is incredible and i'm so grateful and it's important the awards are important in terms of being able to have access to a different part of the industry whether it's financial where you can make better bigger projects or even a bit of validation in your ideas and your storytelling and that boost to keep you going but it's it's kind of making making films is is more important making good films that you believe in that you you think would change the world not every film you make has to change the world do you know what i mean and i think that we we, we need we need films that are that are good in different ways but you have to i feel like you have to find your voice and although the awards are great don't think about it don't think about it just make good things and good things will come to you so yeah oz you're right it's, it's been a grind and it's it's about working and working and putting in work and finding your voice and making mistakes like Afi said short films is there for you to make mistakes it's the best opportunity for you to make mistakes um and i i love shorts man i think i'll always make them even even when i make long form uh stuff i don't think i'll ever lose my love for short films yes i don't know how much affiliation you have with egyptian culture but i know it's the same in egyptian culture as well like in a bar cinema you know what i mean i mean that's the questions you're getting and you're a man imagine Imagine yeah, exactly. as an Egyptian woman. So like, I get it all as well. Um, but again, like none of that has ever fazed me because it's just kind of, I don't define my identity or who I am by anyone else's expectations of me. I kind of always just nod and be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm married to the craft. Yeah, that's what I say <laughs> as well. <laughs> I love that. I love that. 
That's why I try telling my mum. There's your marriage. <laughs> this is, you know, something that on the director's take, you know, we're really about that. It's about the honesty behind the behind the artist. Mm. How do you both? Obviously, it depends on it depends on your circle of friends, right? So, you know, you you were going to be paralegal. I'm sure you got friends who are like. Mm. fucking lawyers now do you know what I mean yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're right you're right I'm like we're about to like hit a dinner bill that's probably someone's rent or whatever do you know what yeah, I mean let's like, all split it evenly yeah <laughs> you've had yeah, like yeah. a water <laughs> <laughs> how do you how do you both navigate those types of conversations I had it recently one of my friends he, he was thinking out loud when he was talking to him and he was like he goes it's not really a career that you're going to make loads of money out of are you and I was like bruv I'm happy doing what I'm doing you ain't mm. Mm. So how do you two navigate that? Like as you all, in, you know, you know, going into your thirties and beyond, like how do you, how do you navigate those conversations in your circle of friends who might have other careers that they don't understand this career? So, so I, my mum called up one of my uncles um, to sort of like say, she, you know, yeah, it's got nominated for BAFTA, and uh, he responded with like, oh, well, is she getting paid? She was like, no, mm. and he was like, oh, then then what's the point? Um, oh, God. And so, like, and so there is that. There's like, there's a, there's a huge part of people being like, "Oh, you're not going to make any money from it." But I feel like you answered that in the question that you asked us, where it's like, I've I watch people wake up every day and do a job that they are miserable in, mm. and just like they dread waking up. They, do you know what I mean? And they they sort of they're just surviving, like they're, mm. they're doing something because they need to pay bills or they need to get by and and absolutely we all need to do that but like this is Mm. so much more than that this is like it Mm. fulfills me on a like spiritual level like I'm doing something that genuinely makes me happy like when I was working non-film related jobs and I had to wake up at 5am oh my god like that was horrible but if I'm going to set and I'm waking up at four thirty in the morning, I am up. I am I'm <laughs> up before the alarm goes off. Like I'm ready yeah. to kind of go. And so for me, like that's so much more rich. Like I'm so much mm. more richer because I get to wake up every day and have the privilege of doing something that I utterly adore and love. Mm. Um and like will the money come down the line? Who knows? I don't know. But like I would rather spend my days like the short amount of life that i'm given by doing something that i love and enjoy every day um whether that's like getting up early hours in the morning to get to set or whether that's being locked in a room writing for hours and hours and hours like it's still it's the same thing yeah i i have friends who i I, we went to uni together and my group of friends are now lawyers going on to be partners in firms, bankers, accountants. They're all, mashallah, making great, good money and they have families. But they're also, I'm, I'm really lucky because they're all really supportive as well. Because they kind of, like in all of my films, my mates are uh, extras. So even in Yellow, the, some of the people who are walking past camera, they're all bankers, they're lawyers, they're partners, you know what I mean? But they've always been there. They're always kind of, um, they're my first people I go to with, with a new project. I'm like, guys, I need like so-and-so, I need like 10 people. And they they love it and they're really supportive of what, what I'm doing. Um, of course, I have my own like internal struggles with, with you know, with sometimes the uncertainty of the industry. But I, I think um, my friends actually 
live vicariously through me. And they've said this to me as well, because they all think I'm, I'm a rock star. Because um, I'm, I'm doing all of these things. And I think, and also I think what makes it worth it for me is just when I make films, like I get messages like from people from all over the world who have been touched by this little thing that I've written in my room and I've sh- that I've shot. Do you know what I mean? And that's, that's when I'm like, man, like I'm, I'm doing something right. And I think like Yasmin said, life is, I think life is too short to worry about the money as long as you have a roof over your head and you can take care of yourself. And if, like I said, if you make good things, good things will come. And maybe that might include money at some point as well. Um, it's not here yet. <laughs> you know what I mean, does, does anyone know where it is? Because I don't <laughs> know where it is at the moment, but it, it might come. Uh, but I, I think it's more about... It's a byproduct, isn't it? It's a bonus. It's a byproduct. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. a bonus. But I get a lot of that fulfillment, like Yasmin said. I get it from waking up at 4 a.m. And then being and then shooting it and then being in the edit and then seeing it come to life and then putting it through sound design, putting it through score, putting it through the grade and seeing this thing that started off as words on a page come to life on screen and then putting it out into the world. You know, there's, there's nothing like it. I mean, we all know, we're all filmmakers here. You guys know that every aspect of it has its own buzz when you finish a script it's got its own buzz when you go first day of set it's got its own buzz when you're in the edit when you picture lock it has it so i'm getting it's got its own highs do you know what i mean you touched upon something there as well that's that's really beautiful in that you know about receiving messages and stuff Mm. another thing is that like when when you're surrounded by like lawyers and engineers and doctors and stuff there's this thing that you as a filmmaker like what contribution are you making to society like sometimes Mm. I feel like we get undermined with with what our contribution to society is as opposed to like a doctor or a lawyer um Mm. or all these sort of other career choices that certainly within my culture and my background people would deem more valuable to society Mm. um but again like those messages are an indication of the contribution we are making to society Mm. and to people's lives a huge huge contributions including people who do have those worlds in life so i think that's a that's a that's another thing as well is is you know what contribution you're making you know what difference you're making and you you kind of you just stick by that it shapes the culture i don't think people realize the turns of phrases and uh, even the way some people act or like people do little stupid dances or the jokes they tell, a lot of it is either like regurgitated or it's sort of facilitated by by music or film or some form of art, whether they acknowledge where it's come from or not. So yeah, in talking about visuals, um, you, both your films have striking elements. So I think Jellyfish and Lobster has the surreal elements that allows it to have a bit of visual flair. Um, and then in yellow, you've you've clearly put a lot of emphasis on incorporation of colour, um, as you did in your previous film as well, in Our Kind of Love. So, um, And it also extends to the branding as well, like in its poster. So it'd be good to hear about your approach, your approaches to, to creating like the visual tone of, of each film and how you're communicating that uh, to your wider team. What's really striking about the Chaderis, the main props in my film, is that is that bright blue of the fabric. And it's kind of synonymous with Afghanistan. Everyone who sees it, they connect it straight to Afghanistan. And it's so it's I've always been intrigued by those actually, because I'm like, who who made that? Who invented that? It's such a weird design and it's such a like um efficient design where it covers everything but the eyes, do you know what I mean? It's completely efficient. Um and I knew going in to production because of the title of the film and because of how 
um, the, the payoff at the end would be the nails, would be the yellow. I knew that I wanted to have a contrast with the yellow and the blue and almost kind of this clash between the colors because it, it's so it's so interesting because um, yellow is a, is a color that in different cultures mean different things. So the yellow-bellied pirate, you know, cowardice. And then it also means hope. And how that juxtapositions with the blue of the Chinese. Because the poster itself, is everything is blue. The po- everything is blue. And then you just have the word yellow on there. So it's like, oh, in my head, it's like, well, that would be intriguing. Because it's like, where in the story does yellow fit? Something that's completely on the other end of the color spectrum. And in the grade as well, we played with the color. Um, but yeah, I think, like, like, like I've said, like yellow has been my film where I've, I've gotten closest i've ever been to what my visual style will be going forward i mean I, I can't say it'll be forever i don't know it might change at some point if the story depends on it or if the um if the film depends on a different type of style but i find that shooting the way i've shot yellow is how it fits me as a filmmaker the best and how i can tell the story the with the most um uh, resonance so that's kind of and also with production design as well we're going in with uh, my beautiful, uh, wonderful production designer, Laura Zaidan, who we spoke about the color palette as well on the day and how the blue kind of overpowers everything else. Even when we're, when we are in the scenes with the shopkeeper and Laili talking, the frame is set in a way where you can see the blue child that he's hanging over them, looking down on them. And I often think they're like dementors. Do you know what I mean? They're just looking down and they're just watching all the time and sucking. And Exactly that. And how about you, Yasmin? How do you go about crafting? Because I think the thing which sticks out to me is, is a lot of the um, the underwater stuff um, and the use of slow motion, I believe. So, um, yeah, how do you go about creating the, the visual tone of your piece? I feel like for Jellyfish and Lost, I was really um, interested by the idea of the characters and the palette of the characters juxtaposing the palette of the location. Like, there was this interesting thing of wanting the characters to be even more char- characterful. And it was like, how do you... Um, this marriage between like costume location and camera and lighting but how do you use that to kind of bring out the characters more because like in writing it is so is so um grace is so characterful um and so it was like um i wanted the location to have like a certain tone it had it had like a certain like warmth to it to a degree but I still wanted it to to sit in in a kind of like grayish mm-hmm. palette type thing um and then I wanted her costume to kind of like be vibrant and be bold and sort of be out there just sort of like explore what that does how we receive a character and I've got so many people that like have pinpointed their what they were like oh I love her pink furry slippers in the first scene and like I love his pink shorts for his jellyfish costume and so it's like it goes to show how those decisions have made people kind of love the characters more um and kind of connect with them um and also like tonally we are playing with light and dark constantly and so I wanted to do that again with the colors and having like a darker backdrop but the characters bring in the color and so it all kind of aided this tone of or this balance of light and dark with the pool and with the underwater I knew I just wanted it to have this sense of kind of like infinity the under the water is just like is this illusion of youth and the illusion of immortality um and so I wanted the you see like in in the first in the first time they jump in the pool you see it more where like you can't really see what's around them um 
but by the time he gets to the scene where Grace is beneath the water with the statue, um, you can see the lines of the pool behind her. She's yeah. up against a wall and it's just kind of like the real world is starting to kind of close in. And that space is becoming like less of a magical space and more of like a, a real one. So yeah, I mean, those are just kind of like some of the thoughts behind that. And you've both had successful festival journeys. <laughs> I've been intrigued to hear a bit about that, how you kind of went about that. Did you have a nomination in mind from the beginning? Did you have an end goal? Uh, did you work towards it? What what did that process look like of, of doing the festival journey and, and what did you learn along the way as well when seeing it connect with audiences? Oh, absolutely not, man. Uh, like Yellow premiered um, in San Sebastian, but not the San Sebastian Film Festival. It premiered in a tiny little festival called the San Sebastian Human Rights Film Festival. Do you know what I mean? And this was me just sending the film out to festivals. And I didn't know that having a big premiere was a, was a thing. I, I, I didn't know that's a thing, like aiming for a big premiere at one of the A-level festivals. So we premiered at this tiny festival and I went, I went out to it. Um, and dude, like for anyone who makes films and are incredibly or lucky to, to get into festivals, I highly advise you go, go to the festival. It's so incredible. It's so fun. So I've, I've tried to go to most of the festivals where if I could get help from the British Film Council to pay for the flights or if I could, if it's not too far and I could make it, I would go because I think a lot of the festival experience is actually in attending, not so much in a festival being there, but also like kind of meeting people and meeting amazing filmmakers and also being exposed to great films. I was in Norway like um, two weeks ago and I, I had this tiny festival called Minimalen in Trondheim where Yellow was playing. And dude, I saw like some incredible shorts, man. I saw some films that were really playing with the form, really incredible. Like it's a, it's a thing called Machinima which is machine cinema making films inside video games. And dude, like it, it really touched me. And you also find things that will stay with you forever. I, I have like on my website, I do this thing called Marginalia, which is just a note. It's like a blog page where I, it's just for me. So I don't forget things for most festivals I've been to. I make like a little, little article about it on what films I like. Part of being a filmmaker is, is to go out into the world and to consume. So traveling, going out there, being able to meet new people, speak to new people and network as well. I'm not that great at networking, but it. I feel like if you're genuine and you come from a place of being genuine and authentic and honest, more than making contacts is making friends. So yeah, our festival run has been, like we've played at Palm Springs, but we've also played at tiny festivals in like Sheffield or something, do you know what I mean? And they've both been incredible. I, In my opinion, the smaller festivals are the ones that are a lot more, uh, filmmaker focused and you have all of these they they bring the team together all the other filmmakers that you go on walks and you go on dinners and you talk about films and cinema um, but yeah just the festival circuit is something that is uh, that is really fun and that I've, I've I've really enjoyed when doing Yellow awesome and how about you Yasmin it kind of just built up a shit ton of traction didn't it like there's obviously like you're in the same year groupers like Musa Alderson Clark, right? Who did the the amazing like Killing Boris Johnson. Yeah, exactly. Like and so immediately after school, like he got into Cannes. And so and and I guess at that point you were still waiting to hear back from festivals. So you're seeing like other filmmakers do go at various levels and you might be looking down upon yourself for whatever reason. Um or like just looking left and right. But actually like 
everyone moves at different speeds and now like you're having your moment it's one of those isn't it yeah 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 and i and i feel like the especially like with the festival circuit and navigating it like it's we i mean i had no i had zero expectation for it i just like i just entered into as many festivals like as possible um just just to see you know see how it went and for me it was it's all it's it's always been amazing just to sit in a room and and see and hear and feel the audience react to your work that's been like the best thing about this whole festival journey it's like sitting in those rooms like i remember um when we won the audience award at encounters like the award ceremony clashed with a screening of jellyfish and lobster that was sold out in another scening like in another in another screening there at the same time and i was like i'm gonna go to the screening because for me it's about like seeing an audience sitting in that room and seeing and feeling an audience react to it um and and so i was in there and as i was in there i had my editor max text me and be like you need to run in here now we've just won the audience award so i like had to run <laughs> from the screening to the to the sort of where the award ceremony was taking place but for me it was always wanting to prioritize that that's that's the magic and the special of like how special festivals are and i agree like make the effort to go to every single one if not for that if not to see the ways in which your film connects with people um and what they have to sort of say about it and how it resonated with them um and journey for student officers had an interesting journey and i think that this is this is something that people should take on board and that we never got into can we never got into lff we never got into sundance we never got into tiff we never got into all of these like big festivals that people assume that like would change your life don't underestimate like the power and and the reach that these smaller festivals have like give your film a platform and give it access aesthetica norwich encounters leeds like they're all i think for me like equally as valuable and and sometimes as like um mentioned earlier like more filmmaker focused um and it's less about like the glitz and the glam and the reputation and it's really just about you and your work um so it's yeah i mean i i from the beginning i i for me it was all about wanting wanting the film to connect with people um and not necessarily having expectation on it winning awards or anything and and it's and it's done that it's connected with with so many people and that journey has been so amazing to be on um and i'm i'm still just kind of so grateful for it for every single festival that has accepted jellyfish and lobster and has allowed it to kind of be seen by people and as a result of that just the rich conversations i've had with them amazing it's and it's really nice as well when you post about some of the touching comments that you get given because you often do that and i think that it's such a, a universal thematic film the past few days since it's kind of gone on youtube i'm like i've I've had red eyes just good reading through them like in in sort of in tears um but that like that's the bin like that's the greatest win like whatever happens like on Sunday the greatest win that any of us as filmmakers can achieve is to elicit that kind of a response from an audience and from absolutely. the people and that connection absolutely so for me like we've all already won in that sense you know um and yeah, the feeling is, is is amazing. I think that's the thing, isn't it? That obviously you put it out on festivals is one thing, but when actually your work touches a public audience who are not the filmmaking community or film literate people, that's when you kind of get like 
different responses and and that's when it really connects with people on a different level because that's the audience i'm sure you had that elham with um when it was on omleto for a bit yeah yeah no it was it was incredible because we put it up on omleto um for about uh about two weeks i think or three weeks and it, it racked up like 80k views in that time and then going through the comments like you were mentioning as well yasmin like seeing all the different people putting in what they took from the film and what they felt it's kind of it's that's when the beauty of making films is that's when you take that sigh and you go oh wow i i made something that touched someone do you know what i mean so it comes back to all of this unemployment existential you know worries existential crises the feeling of not being good enough or not being included enough in in the industry and then the effort of making films the effort of putting together a team the effort of looking at the white page and writing on it and building building a world and building a story and then waking up at 4am and then getting the shots on time and getting the day done and then putting it into the edit putting it into the grade all of that 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 struggle pays off when you read those comments and we see the reaction of the of the audience because that's kind of your blood sweat and tears into this tiny thing and short films is something that not many people you know it's something that it's kind of it won't be seen by that many people it's kind of has a short run but then when you have a film that is reaching out to so many audiences and touches so many people it's just man it's incredible that includes i think comments that aren't always favorable of your film mm. this is just more in a general sense like if we go back to killing boris johnson that's an incredible film like that's and and that got sort of some heat off the back of it but nonetheless it's it's opening up a conversation and so like the responses that you get for your film isn't always going to be amazing but i think even even like the negative comments even that is so valuable and even that mm. someone taking the time to kind of do that your film regardless has impacted them in some way um mm. to take the time to do that and so even that is is i think as a filmmaker it, it's a huge positive have either of you had marketing kind of like help with it that's my first question and in that look you've both got really strong poster materials you've got great marketing collateral marketing is arguably more important than actually the film because you need to get it out to people for people to see it so i'm just going to ask for people who want to know did you have all that in mind and, and what stuff did you collect? And have you got any practical tips for people to have marketing materials ready before or when they're shooting? Because it, it always gets neglected for the film and it's like, well, people need to get hyped to your film. That's the world we live in now. I, I think when we started, when we were going through post and we finished the film, that's something that I've always done with my films um, is I create a set of assets and as well as the Instagram page, which... Um, because I, I, it's 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 kind of hard because you need to kind of be literate with Photoshop and a bunch of different things, but it's not impossible. Um, what I would recommend in terms of getting a whole package together for your film is definitely a press kit. And for me, the press kit includes, it's a PDF document where it starts with the poster and then it goes into the technical stuff of what it was shot on, how many minutes it is, whether you have the DCPs, etc., the exports. And then you go into the film, like the logline, what is it about, the synopsis, you put in a director statement. Um, and then you include stills. So for both Our Kind of Love and Yellow, I made sure that I had a BTS photographer. Because like you said, especially when you're sending it out to these festivals, a lot of it is as a festival goer or as, as someone who thinks about watch pressing play, you make quick judgments. 
and if you have good if you have good artwork in the sense of a good BTS photo that kind of encapsulates your film or captures the theme of your film or just is intriguing in its own that is more likely for whether it's a festival programmer or someone at a festival looking at it through a festival catalog to go oh that looks interesting they read the logo and oh I'll go check that out and then that you get eyes on your film uh what else also a trailer I've got a question about that actually with the trailer did you release it before you got into a festival or did you do it as well as a festival no i had the trailer i, I made the trailer early and i just put it on my vimeo on it's, it was just open to, open to the world you know but with uh with festivals they when you submit it obviously they need everything but they will the first thing that they they look at oh well i think they would look at is the trailer is this kind of well, let's get a sense of the film and that's when when you you kind of want to sell your film and I, I feel like with the trailer less is more uh, i've seen some trailers where it kind of uh for especially for a short film it does it tries to do quite a lot but i think if you keep it at a balance where it's intriguing enough for someone to press play but also not so vague but yeah i think that'd be my my key point so to get get your assets in order and and have that ready to deploy when it starts doing the festival circuit and marcus you know from the nfts like there's a marketing course there and but it's always been interesting to me how like the nfts give you a, like someone to do your marketing for your first year film and then don't for your grant um mm. which kind of definitely yeah. says to me but but at the time we knew the importance of making sure you had like a, a poster and a trailer and and all of that and also i feel like whenever i come up with ideas for films the first thing i have in my head is the image of the poster which mm. i don't know how much say I'm going to have in that as my career progresses and I do longer form work with whatnot. But like, um, I always knew I wanted this image of a jellyfish and a lobster, like them in their costumes stood at the shore of the sea. Um, and so I had that, that, that image in my mind from the beginning, but, but generally speaking, we didn't have anyone specifically for marketing for our film. It was just us kind of doing the poster and then just kind of like putting it out there and just kind of seeing what, what comes of it? You're essentially branding your film. You both got nominated for BAFTAs. Well done. <laughs> oh, thank you, man. <laughs> what happened when you found out? What did you go and do to celebrate? Um, who did you tell? What's happened in the aftermath? Have you been get, getting inundated by people with podcast requests and things? It's been it's been kind of it's been kind of crazy because we got well it's it started getting crazy in December for me actually because we got shortlisted for the Oscars as well and that's when it really gets ramped up and uh, you feel like this like um hurricane comes into your life and everything's blowing around and you're just like your hot property for a while do you know what I mean but uh, the good thing with these awards and with getting recognized by by the academy and by the by the British Academy is that you get to connect with people that you want to speak to. So I've had uh, really good generals with different production companies, different people that I want to work with. And that kind of opens that bridge. Do you know what I mean? It opens that door for you to, to go out into the world and kind of have this, this kind of this stamp, stamp of approval, which, um, which is important. It's important for, for someone who's, is starting out in their career as a filmmaker and wanting to get into long form and getting recognized is something that is it's a it's a it's an honor you know so it's been really fun yeah and like i said i got told off by my mom for not being married but other than that it's all been positive <laughs> responses <laughs> yeah how about you yasmin i uh i had a had a good cry but happy tears and then i uh, ate a pot noodles i think 
<laughs> nice. Oh, I had noodles on that day. Yes, I had noodles chicken. too. Chicken and both. I feel like pot noodles should be like the, a traditional thing of every time we achieve something. Just have a pot noodle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was in Chinatown. I was in Chinatown when I found out and I was like, you know what? I'm going to have some udon noodles. So I was just having <laughs> udon noodles. Like it was amazing. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, well, well, I'm going to keep that tradition alive now. We have to. I've been, I've been sort of like in between obviously trying to facilitate the interviews and all of that but also like just hungry to keep creating and because I'm writing and working on things at the moment I'm sort of like kind of focused on that like all of this stuff is is amazing and I I've been doing as much as I can but really predominantly I've kind of just been like trying to stay focused on like the next thing and and keep crafting oh you're so much better better than I am I've done no work since all of this craziness i'm like behind on deadlines and stuff so i've got to really fix my life up <laughs> yeah. do you know what you're going to do if you're going to win have you written your speeches ah <laughs> uh, I, I have no idea i haven't i have I, I have like um a thought of what it might be about but i haven't i haven't written it or kind of thought too much about it <laughs> No, I, 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 I don't know what it was because like the funny, like the realistic thing is like even if I were to like prep something, I know in the moment if it was to happen, yeah. my head is going to yeah. be elsewhere. There's no way on earth I'm going to remember It'll what just I will go out the window. Exactly. Yeah, um, so there's a part of me that's like maybe then just kind of let it be if it happens and see what comes, um, rather than trying to like write something prepare for it. Amazing. That brings us to the end. Like, best of luck to the both of you. Oh, thanks, man. And you've got two great films. So big congratulations. You both deserve to win. It it would be um, great to know as well uh, to ask the, the age-old question, which I'm sure you're going to get bombarded with if you haven't already. But what's next? Hopefully a uh, debut feature. Um, I've been told I can say this, so I will, that I'm working on the feature for Jellyfish and Lobster. Great. And then also was sort of like developing and sort of writing uh, sort of other sort of ideas that I have and just getting them down as well. I'm developing a feature as well um, based off my first short film actually, Our Kind of Love. So I'm, I'm working on that, um, but also trying to get into TV, trying to direct television because I think that's something that I'd, I'd really enjoy. I think it'd be fun. Irons and fires and all that. Congrats to you guys as well, Marcus, for your NFTS um, film. Um, I, I watch. I what's uh, the, the one in space? Space, space plug. Yeah, space yeah. plug. That's right. Yeah, congrats <laughs> to you, and also Oz. You finished the short film as well, so congratulations. Well, cheers. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, man. Can I take this as an opportunity to say that the director's podcast is effing incredible? Like, thank yeah. you guys both for yeah. doing what you Big do. Up. Like, this podcast has been such a lifesaver. Um, oh, and you. so so insightful um, so yeah just like really appreciate the work because you guys are pursuing your own filmmaking careers and at the same time putting so much time and effort into this Yeah. and so yeah. I really just wanted to say like as a filmmaker to filmmaker how much I appreciate this podcast mm -hmm. oh, yeah. well thank you, you. yeah it's pretty thank you. overwhelming um, and to go to events and stuff and meet people it kind of yeah it, it seems to be doing a lot so yeah I'm, I'm thankful it's it's doing bits and bobs you're like it's an art to have a podcast like this where you kind of speak to your guests in a way that brings out you know all of their knowledge and brings out what they can teach so i i mean i've had so much fun so it's um yeah kudos to you both man keep it up 
uh, nugget of the week. So me and Oz obviously are inspired by a lot um, and consume a lot every single week to keep getting better. And we like to ask you guys what you did, what you kind of consumed to to get better as well. So what has inspired you this week? Let's start with you, Elham, before you deflect to Yasmin. Um, no, <laughs> I'll, I'll, actually, I'll get back to what I said earlier. It's about um, discovering machinima and the short films in that because it kind of goes, it, it proves that all of the, so you have this film, people, filmmakers making film inside video games and then you, you realise that it's not about the form, it's about the message because even though it's like, I, I watched a short film that was shot inside GTA, but it touched me, you know what I mean? It resonated so much, it was so beautiful and it, I got goosebumps. But it's, um, and I guess that's um, that's my nugget of the of the week, machinima. Look, look into it, guys. It's incredible. Well, thank you. And how about you, Yasmin? My nugget of the week is probably a quote I read and I mentioned it at the BAFTA sort of screening the other day, but um, it's a quote I read uh, so it was from Spike Lee and I, I say allegedly because I know that these quotes online you never know who mm. said it but it just said write the ideas that you're embarrassed about um, and because yeah. I've because I've been so deep in the writing process lately and like naturally that's such an isolating journey and so naturally like all the insecurities that come with that um, mm. it was something it was like a little light bulb that kind of like went off in my head when I read it um, it just in terms of being like fearless with your work or that fear is a good thing and that it's an indication that you're doing something right and you're creating something honest. So I would say I would say that because it's, it's given me the courage to sort of hit send on a few things that I didn't have courage to. Um, so, yeah. How about you, Oz? What you got? DVD commentary for Godfather with Francis Ford Coppola. Ooh. And it's it's two and a half hours of really, really good stuff. And it just just like just like we've got two BAFTA nominated filmmakers on and they've spoken candidly about how, you know, they've had struggles in the production and whatever, because that's what filmmaking is. He talks mm. about that on like Godfather, which is arguably one of the Mark Rushmore films and Mark Rushmore oh, filmmakers of cinema. So he struggled on every film he's done like I was going to say, he notoriously oh struggles a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's insane because he did The Godfather and then he still struggled on Apocalypse Now. He still wouldn't get money. He still wouldn't get funding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like an indie filmmaker at heart. Yeah, yeah. It's insane. I'm, I'm looking forward to Megalopolis though. Yeah. Very intrigued. I hope you still got it. Um, and mine is is topical. It's just to watch the BAFTA nominated films. I believe they're all up on YouTube now on the, on the BAFTA channel. Um, and... They should be on post the fest post the ceremony as well, right? Uh, yes, it should be on for I think two weeks, about Great. two weeks. So yeah, yeah. So you got a little bit of time. Um, yeah, go check them out. They're they're all amazing. Um, yeah, and you can you can kind of watch that as well as listen to this. So that that would be my nugget of the week. Brilliant. Well, that brings us to the end. So where can people find you all? I mean, where can people find you online? Uh, I think I'm probably most active on Instagram. Yasmin underscore Fifi ninety two. I think, you know, I don't even know what my... <laughs> um, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's that. Great. We'll put that in the show notes. And what about you, Arham? Me too. I'm on I'm on Instagram at Zaradzo. Um, so feel free to reach out. Um, yeah. Well, thank you so much, guys. Honestly, it's been, it's yeah. been great. Oh, thank you for um, having us, man. I mean, I, won't, I haven't got a favourite, but yeah, I'll be cheering you both on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, guys, we'll speak to you in a bit. Take care. Bye. Thanks for having us. See you later.
Take care. Assalamualaikum. Welcome, Salaam. So that concludes the episode. Next week, there won't be anything going on because we're still in the off-season. We just thought we'd throw this one out for you guys. Um, but we are working away behind the scenes, recording episodes, stacking episodes, got some great guests lined up and doing all the sorts of planning. And hopefully there'll be a lot more coming up on that front. So join the mailing list, um, fill that in so you can be the first to find out. So if anyone does happen to be listening, get your questions in at the directors take at outlook.com and we want you to tell us what you want to know about directing or the film industry at large and we'll do our best to tell you. We want to ship this as a resource for you so do get your questions in and reach out to us on Instagram which is the Directors Take Podcast and also on Twitter which is at Directors Take and leave us a review on whichever platform you get your podcast from. Those are still really important. They really do help. Until season two, keep learning, keep failing and keep the faith.